they're gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care, and I'm just a devil with another spare. Viva Las Vegas! Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Doc's Boneyard. Hey, I'm Doc, and before we even get started this week, we're going to sound off with the mantra. It's a safe zone, but not a comfort zone. And I'll be right back after this commercial announcement to tell you why. Hey, it's Doc from Doc's Boneyard. Hey, listen, if you're in the Fayetteville, North Carolina area, especially around Fort Bragg, and you're looking for that specialized military gear, why don't you go see my friend George at Silverback Military Surplus. He has the newest and used and new military gear. He's a personal friend of mine, and I shop there myself. You can find him at 6477C. Yadkin Road, Y-A-D-K-I-N Road, in Fayetteville. You could also find him at Bragg Boulevard Flea Market, 3315 Bragg Boulevard, Booth C1. That's Charlie 1 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Tell him Doc sent you. So if you're thinking he's starting out with the mantra, this might be something worth paying attention to. Yeah, folks. This is going to be a tough one. I'm not going to lie, but I'm going to let it hang all out, my twigs and giggleberries, for everyone to hear. The song I chose to start this episode off was Viva Las Vegas by Elvis Presley. And no, before we go any further, it's not about Las Vegas, Nevada. It's about what happens downrange. Does it stay downrange? Now, for those of you who haven't served, and especially haven't served in combat, uh, the uh, expression downrange may seem a little uh, little out there. But no, for those of us who have been under fire, it's uh, in combat, folks. And uh, the question still stays the same. Does what happened downrange in combat stay downrange in combat? I'm going to talk about my personal experience and experiences this week. And like I said, it's going to be a tough one, so uh, just kind of bear with me. Now, before I go any farther, I just want to apologize beforehand if this acts as a trigger to any of my combat vets out there. That's not my point or my intention. It's just to raise awareness to the issue and maybe figure out how in the hell we can deal with it. All right, so without uh, further ado, I'm just going to jump into it with uh, with both feet here and uh, see if I sink or swim. All right, for those who, who are new to the podcast series, uh, I am a, a combat veteran of Iraqi freedom. I'm also a 18-year veteran of the U.S. Army. Uh, I served as a medic. I went in originally in 1987. I had several breaks in services over the years, uh, probably about five or six. Uh, in 2003, I saw a unit from the Alabama National Guard, the 115th Signal Battalion, part of the 142nd Signal Brigade out of Florence, Alabama. They were deploying in direct support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Now, I'm not going to go into their exact duties, only to say 
that I went in support of them as a medic. We supported the 1st Infantry Division, uh, part of Task Force Danger. And as a result of my duties, I did about 127 convoy missions, I would say. Uh, logged about 8,000 miles in uh, Indian country and lived to tell about it. So uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But on a more serious note, folks, uh, we were gathered in our team hooch on May 7th, 2004, and we got a warning order, which is basically a heads up for a uh, mission that was going to happen the following morning. Uh, the mission was to accompany another unit, their equipment and their personnel, to... LSA Anaconda, which was a rather rather large base just north of Baghdad, between Baghdad and Tikrit, which uh, housed Army and both uh, Air Force personnel. Now, we were to be escorting two five-tons filled with personnel going on R&R. Yes, that was their debarkation point. So what, uh, what basically was supposed to happen is they were supposed to augment our patrol with uh, extra uh, vehicles and firepower if we needed. And as we got ready to leave the gate, we did our normal pre-movement checks, which is, you know, we stopped before we left the gate to make sure we had everybody, weapons were loaded, shit was working the way it was supposed to. And uh, when our SP time, or our time of a our departure came around, uh, we took off. First few minutes of the convoy, you know, there were, there were no problems. Uh, we got down south of Tikrit on Route 1, which was Main Supply Route Tampa, or MSR Tampa, which is the main north-to-south route through the country of Iraq. Uh, they picked it up at the uh, border, and uh, hell, it went all the way up into Kurdish country. So we got down... MSR Tampa, probably about 15, 20, 20 miles, give or take some. Uh, we had just passed an outpost called Brassfield Mora. Now, I'm not sure if it was a, uh, if it was named for two individuals. I'm assuming that, uh, they had two individuals killed and they, they renamed it in their honor. But we had gotten a little, little south of there, not quite to the Samara Bypass, which was infamously known for IED attacks. Now, we had to stop because the unit that we were escorting, quite frankly, their shit kept breaking down, and we had to keep stopping. So, once again, we pulled security. I was in the command vehicle. I was with Rough Rider 6, so Rough Rider 6, Captain Tim, I'm going to call him, left the vehicle to see what the hell the problem was. Tim and the driver went back to check on the, the rear of the column. My gunner, Chris, his weapon was oriented out in the opposite direction of where I was sitting. So Chris and I didn't have the same... Same sector of fire. Chris was pointed out over the landscape, and where we stopped was basically in front of two small buildings out in the middle of nowhere, if you can believe it, folks. 
Now, it's important that I describe the area because you'll get the concept of the story. Okay, next to the road, there was approximately about a three to four foot high mud brick fence that spanned the length of the two buildings. Behind the two buildings, uh, approximately 20 to 30 feet behind that, were the two structures. Now, they were, there was a larger structure and a smaller structure. Out toward the road where I was at, there was what looked like to be what the Iraqis call a watershed, which is basically their shitter, their outdoor crapper. So we're sitting there pulling security, and these two children come out, which was not uncommon. You know, pass kids all the time. Well, obviously, they were curious about the the big army, army machine parked out in their, their front lawn, so to speak. So it was being kids and being curious as any child would, you know, they, they got closer and closer and closer. Now, I was trying to divide my attention between the two children coming up, looking at the roof and the windows of the structures for obvious threats. So I was scanning between buildings and watching the kids all at the same time. The kids got closer, and they started pointing to that building, which I believed to be a watershed, and they started jabbering in Iraq, you know, in Arabic, whatever the hell they were saying, I had no idea. But they kept motioning toward this building, and I did not know what was in that building. I did not know if it was a command-detonated IED, and that's basically an IED with a wire that someone could detonate as they, they needed to. Or if there were weapons in there. Or if there were explosives. I had no idea of the hidden dangers in that building. All right, folks, this is where it's going to get a little little emotional and, and tough here. So the, the kids are steadily approaching, and I turn to them with my rifle pointed in their direction to let them know that they needed to stop. That I didn't want them coming any closer. They continued to advance. I raised the weapon up to my shoulder in a firing position, put my finger on the trigger, and started taking the slack out of the trigger. And if they would have moved another step, I would have killed both of them. And I would have done it without hesitation. I would have done it as a means to save my fellow soldiers. Now, I don't know if it was Allah himself, the good Lord Almighty, but the kids never took another step. Now, I would like to believe that they, they called on pretty quick that uh, something bad was about to happen. Now, while this was happening, my thought process was like, thought process was more or less, look, kids, don't do this. I don't want to shoot you. I will. I will not hesitate. And this was going on in the back of my mind. Now, this happened in less than, I would say, 15 to 25 seconds. Now, the irony of the whole situation was nobody else had any idea what was going on. Everybody else was focused on their sector of fire or trying to ascertain the status of the vehicles or 
you know, providing security, what have you. You know, I was in my own private little hell, so to speak, for that, that short amount of time. Now, if I had to guess the age of the children, I would say that they were toddlers probably around three to five years old, eh, give or take some. You know, they they couldn't have been more than three feet tall, if that. And uh, the crux of the situation was, you know, I had two boys around the same age at home. Now, I'm going to let you put two and two together. Now, even though I didn't take the shot and didn't kill those two young boys, that moment has stuck with me for 18 years. When I got home, it affected the way I reacted and interacted to my boys. I wanted nothing to do with them, simply because of that fact. Now, does that make me a monster? No. No. I was simply put in a position where I had to make a decision based on what limited information I had on hand, and I didn't have a hell of a lot of time to make that decision. That's where instinct and reaction and training would have taken over. Now, thank the good Lord, it didn't. Uh, I'm happy that I didn't take that shot, but I do believe that If I had to have used deadly force in that situation, I would have compartmentalized it for probably the rest of my life. Just took that little box away in the back of my psyche and, you know, not even opened it. Not even bothered to process or even try to disseminate or, hell, try to figure out or make sense of what had happened. Now, even to this day, I do have a problem being around toddlers. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, now, I once went to a, a PTSD workshop, so to speak, and I was categorized as having what's called a moral injury. And the definition I'm looking at online of a moral injury is one that can be defined as a profound change in or betrayal of one's sense of right or wrong. It is a concept relatively new to psychology. Hmm, imagine that. While not a diagnosis, the term attempts to explain emotions felt by veterans and active service members in response to ethical and moral challenges of war. And basically, war... Is just a blur with momentary snapshots of, of clarity and distinct moments in our personal history. I mean, let's face it, we all have those, those moments that stand out and stick with us for the rest of our lives. Uh, I don't know if it's by compartmentalization or repression that we're not able to recall the bulk of our experience, you know, just those snapshots seem to uh, be the ones that are most prevalent in our psyche. So is there treatment for uh, such injuries, so to speak? Well, I'm looking at an article from psychology today as we speak. And According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, 
trials of cognitive behavioral therapy emphasizing forgiveness and self-compassion have been reported to bring about significant improvements in anxiety and depressive symptoms for veterans with a moral injury. Now, there's also some treatments that are fostered in another thing called post-traumatic growth, which is growth stemming from your trauma. There is obviously spiritual help if you want to go down that road. Uh, I do believe that you have to allow yourself forgiveness. I think that's the key. And like I said, it's been 18 years since that happened to me. And I had to learn self-forgiveness. Now, I'm going to pause right here and give that famous Whiskey Niner One disclaimer. This is not intended to treat or diagnose mental health conditions. Just felt the need to throw that out there, folks. And doing the uh, research for this podcast, uh, this information is out there on the internet. It's waiting for you to grab a hold and apply what you think will work for you. And if it doesn't work, hey, cast that shit aside and find something else. The possibilities are endless. Now, I can say that... uh, Practices like meditation, yes, I know, I'm getting all touchy-feely, but yes, meditation, not medication, meditation does work. Uh, It allows you to self-center, to focus in on you, and I'm going to throw that word out, that psychobabblish word, mindfulness. Yes, you've got to be aware that 360-degree tactical awareness that you once had on the battlefield is still pretty much in effect. Resilient skills. What in the hell is he talking about? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Self-confidence. That's a biggie. Moral injuries beat the hell out of self-confidence. We think that we're not worthy. We're ashamed. Well... I believe you can choke the oxygen and air supply off of that bitch and put that to rest. What about optimism? That's a hard, hard thing to do is be optimistic, be positive. Because, hey, let's face it, we're surrounded by our own personal negativity. Flexibility and adaptability. Hey, if it doesn't work the first time, try something else. Be open-minded. Allow yourself the chance to have successes and learn from your failures. That's more important. And patience. It has taken me 18 years. In two years, it'll be two decades. That's a lot of damn time to be carrying a burden around. Now, like I mentioned, this information is out there. You can find the same information that healthcare professionals, licensed healthcare professionals, charge you a shitload of money for. So, what are some of the steps in healing from a moral injury? 
How about moving away from avoidance and speaking openly about the experience? I know there's only a few people that I've outwardly shared this experience with. Uh, my kids, my spouse. Uh, I did write a manuscript about my experiences in Iraq called My Wounded Journey. Now, I don't know if I'll ever get it published or not, but seeing that on the computer, on the computer screen right in front of me, that was an eye opener because I sure as hell could not run and hide from it because I was looking right at it. I'm going to get all touchy feely again. What about self compassion? That is empathy and love towards yourself. Yeah, believe it or not, that actually plays a big part, or at least it, in my case, played a big part in my ability to heal over that scar that I've lived with for so many years. Now, this next thing is probably the biggest stumbling block of all. How can somebody with a moral injury learn self-forgiveness? That is the key. And basically, forgiveness involves making the decision to basically own it. Now, owning it is just one small part of that. You have to purge the emotions that go along with that. The guilt, the anger, the shame. And I can't tell you how to do that. All I could say is, in my own experience, I've come to terms with that. And I just had to make the decision to let it go. To just say, you know what? Enough. I am tired of carrying this baggage around. I don't need it. I don't like the person that I've become because of it. And basically, that's what I did. Now, unfortunately, I can't make the decision for you. You know when you had enough. And for personal experience, I know when I had enough. And that date was December 28th, 2018. That was anniversary date of my 14th year of being back in the States from Iraq. I allowed myself to mentally come home, even though I was physically back in the States all this time. And I basically came to the conclusion that I was tired of being sick and tired. I was tired of the depression, the anxiety, the guilt, the whole friggin' bag of shit that goes with it. Now, I am still a soup sandwich. Yes, the bread's still soggy and the shit still comes out between the layers, but I'm not as bad as I used to be. I could look myself in the mirror now and say, you know what, Doc, there's hope for you, man. You are well on your way to recovery, and you're well on the way to being that person that you know you can be. And that's what this is all about, folks. It's helping you know that it's okay to feel this way. Hey, shit happens. You can't stop it. But it's how you deal with the after effects of the shit that defines your 
finds who you are. Hey folks, I'm going to call it quits for this week, especially this episode. Uh, this was a, a tough one. I'm not going to lie. It, uh, it kicked my ass a little bit. But I want you to know that there is help out there. All you have to do is be ready, be willing, and be accepting. If you have any questions, comments, rebuttals, concerns, ideas for future podcasts, feel free to drop me a line at theboneyard2021 at yahoo.com. That's theboneyard2021 at yahoo.com. Also, check out our Facebook page, The Boneyard 2021 on Facebook. I'm going to leave you with a little thoughtful tidbit of love and compassion. Remember, it's not the fat, the meat, the gristle. It's just the bare bones. Till next time, folks.